Chapter 23 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Irish University Question. I have already mentioned the fact that Mr. Gladstone had likened the three principal defects in the system of governing Ireland to the three branches of the upas tree and had shown how these defects belonged to the state church system, the land system, and the system of university education. The time had now come, according to Mr. Gladstone's view, for dealing with the question of university education in Ireland. Ireland had two universities, that of Dublin, Trinity College, as it is commonly called, which bestowed its honors on the members of the Protestant Church only, and the Queen's University, a lately created institution which was founded on a purely secular principle and was therefore condemned by the heads of the Catholic Church. Here, then, there was a country, the vast majority of whose people were Roman Catholics, one university which would not accept the Catholics on equal terms with their fellow subjects, and which indeed imposed in an indirect and negative way penalties on them for being Roman Catholics, and another university which the Roman Catholics as such could not recognize or accept. There was no other university in the country. The Catholics had long been loud and earnest in their demands for a chartered Catholic university. The argument employed by most of the English statesmen was that to grant any state aid to a Catholic university would be to endow a sectarian institution out of the national funds. The Catholics made answer that the University of Dublin was in fact a state-endowed institution and that the Queen's University was set up by a grant from the state. Mr. Gladstone made a brave effort to settle the question. His proposal was to make the University of Dublin the one national university in Ireland and to make it a teaching as well as an examining body. Trinity College, Dublin, the Queen's Colleges of Cork and Belfast, the existing Catholic university, an institution which had no charter but was supported altogether by private funds, these bodies were to become affiliated members of the new university. The money to sustain the university was to come in proportionate allotments from the revenues of Trinity College, a very wealthy institution, from the consolidated fund, the fees of students, and the surplus of Irish ecclesiastical property. Trinity College and each of the other affiliated colleges would be allowed to frame schemes for its own government. Thus, therefore, Mr. Gladstone proposed to establish in Ireland one central university to which existing colleges and colleges to exist hereafter might affiliate themselves, and in the governing of which they would have a share, while each college could make what laws it pleased for its own constitution and might be denominational or undenominational as it thought fit. The legislature would give an open career and fair play to all alike, and in order to make the university equally applicable to every sect, 
it would not teach the disputed branches of knowledge or allow its examinations for prizes to include any of these disputed questions. The colleges could act for themselves with regard to the teaching of theology, moral philosophy, and modern history. The central university would maintain a neutral ground so far as these subjects were concerned and would have nothing to do with them. That is a description of the scheme quite full enough for the readers of today. With regard to the provision which excluded theology, moral philosophy, and modern history, it may be borne in mind that Stuart Mill had long been endeavoring to convince the world that the teaching of history is not one of the functions of a national university and had better be left to private education. I only mention this fact in passing because some of the severest attacks made on Mr. Gladstone's bill by what are called cultured people were made on the ground that he excluded those great subjects from the teaching of the proposed Irish university. It is therefore only fair to observe that a man of the culture and intellect of Stuart Mill had preached the doctrine before Mr. Gladstone adopted it and tried to put it into practice. There is a great deal to be said for the views of Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Mill, but it is not necessary for me to go into the subject here. In the debate on the whole question, Mr. Disraeli especially scoffed at the notion of a university which was not to be universal in its teaching. Mr. Disraeli, who as far as education was concerned was far below the level of Gladstone and Mill, had evidently got it into his head that a university was so-called because it taught everything that could possibly be learned in the universe. The scheme had a great deal to recommend it if philosophic compromise could be made the principle of communities and of parties, but it had one fatal defect. It pleased nobody. Nearly all the different parties in the state found fault with it, the English nonconformists cried out against the measure which proposed to endow a distinctly Catholic university out of national funds. The Irish Protestants were furious at the proposed breaking up of the long-established university system in Dublin. The Catholics declared that it did not in any sense meet the justice of their claims as regards the Catholic university. It soon became certain that a large number of the Protestant nonconformist members of Parliament were determined to oppose it. Mr. Disraeli's speech during the closing debate was full of brilliancy and triumphant sarcasm. He knew what the end was to be, and he exulted in the already certain defeat of his great opponent. Mr. Gladstone's speech in reply was dignified, serene, and even pathetic. It was the speech of one who could bear anticipated defeat without bitterness, without despondency, rather in the independence of a quiet than the disdain of a despairing heart, if I may quote some almost forgotten words of Bulwer-Lytton. I listened to that speech of Mr. Gladstone's with an absorbed interest. So indeed must everyone have done who had the privilege to hear it especially touching were the few sentences in which Mr. Gladstone expressed his regret for his inevitable severance on that occasion from the Irish national members with whom he had worked so happily and so successfully on the bill for the abolition of the Irish Church 
and the land tenure scheme for Ireland. The division and the defeat came. It was not indeed a great defeat. The measure was thrown out by a majority of only three, but as Mercutio says of his wound, "'Tis not so deep as a well, nor so wide as a church door, but tis enough, twill serve." Mr. Gladstone, of course, resigned office at once, and Mr. Disraeli was sent for by the Queen. Mr. Disraeli, however, prudently declined to accept office under such conditions. He pointed not unreasonably to the fact that on most questions there would be a majority against him, and he drew in a subsequent speech an amusing picture of the troubles imposed on a prime minister who has, on various great public questions, a majority of the House of Commons against him. Of course, it might be said that he could have dissolved Parliament and called for the judgment of the country at a general election. But, as he once more not unreasonably put it, how could he appeal to the constituencies against a decision of the House of Commons which had his thorough approval? Disraeli, in fact, knew quite well that the time was not opportune for him, and he also knew that the opportune time was coming soon. He held to his resolve, he declined to undertake office, and there was nothing for it but that Mr. Gladstone should return, not indeed to power, but to office. There is a vast difference between being in office and being in power, as Mr. Disraeli had pointed out in the amusing speech to which I have lately alluded. Mr. Gladstone came back, not to power, but to office, it must have been a painful thing for him to continue still to be Prime Minister under such conditions. He came back to office very unwillingly, as everybody knew. He was tired of the whole business. He had good reason to feel disappointed. His health had been severely injured by the excessive strain of the work to which he had devoted himself with an unsparing and almost reckless self-sacrifice. He knew well, everyone must have known, that coming back to office under such conditions he must come back with a diminished and a discredited influence. Any outside observer could have seen all that. It must have borne keenly into Mr. Gladstone's knowledge. A man with a less magnanimous nature than Mr. Gladstone might have refused point-blank to undertake so thankless, so disheartening, and so futile a task. But that was not Gladstone's way. Sensitive and highly strung as he was by nature, he was always able to subject his own personal feelings to the public good. He came back to office, seeing, as everybody must have seen, that the end was near. In truth, the force of reforming energy had spent itself for a time. In English political life there is a law of action and reaction so palpable in its working that almost any intelligent observer might undertake to issue a weather prophecy about its movements. Mr. Gladstone had come into power on the crest of the third wave, as boatmen say, and with that impulse had accomplished a magnificent series of reforms in legislation. Now, however, the force was spent. The outer public had grown tired of mere reform. Great political questions in England are not always decided by the men who take a real and active interest in them. The fate of a great administration is often decided by men whose general inclination is to be let alone unless when something is in the air 
which has a special attraction for them. They murmur to their own souls that they are rather tired of reforming measures, that they are rather tired of Gladstone and his energy, and when election comes they either stay at home and do not vote at all, or they vote against the energetic and wearisome administration. It must have been clear to Mr. Gladstone that a turn in the tide had come. Still, he had no inclination to embarrass public life in Parliament by refusing to return to office, although well knowing that he was only to be a stopgap there. With what Burke would have called a proud humility, he bowed his head and entered the Prime Minister's room again. During his short career of renewed office, he enabled the late Mr. Fawcett to carry a measure for the abolition of religious tests in the University of Dublin. He did the best he could do just then for that cause of university education in Ireland, which he had so generously undertaken, as he could not bring in a great reform, he brought in one of a minor degree, but still on the way to a complete scheme. Better a small reform than nothing, he thought. His nature was always a curious compound of the thinker, perhaps even of the dreamer, and of the worker. End of chapter 23